My name is Phil, and it is a joy to be with you. Um, I want to start off with an announcement or a request completely unconnected to my sermon, and I hope it is received with much grace. We as a church over the past six months, maybe a year or 10 years, have fallen into a bit of a bad habit. Um, our service starts at 10, and normally there's about one or two people in the theater when we begin for various reasons, the Camby Street Bridge, kids, all those things. And so I just have a gentle, gracious request Please be on time. We want to make this space hospitable and welcoming. We say every week, thank you for bringing church to this space, and we mean that. Um, but for those that are visiting, having coming in here and being the only one is a very isolating thing. So just a gentle request. I hope it's not taken in any negative way. I'm sorry for saying it, but just a, a nice request. Be on time. Let's celebrate being together. Let's hang out and spend a little more time together each Sunday. But that has nothing to do with my sermon, and please forgive me if I feel if you feel I have offended you. And this will be funny when Lloyd wanders in in a couple minutes late. So <laughs> I'll call him out as well as a staff member. Well, it's so good to be with you. Um, if you've been journeying with us for some time, you know we are making a long pilgrimage through the Gospel of Luke. And we're at Luke 16, which means we are over the halfway mark. And we're in a... I know, it only has taken us three years. So maybe that's the problem. Maybe we take too long with things. But we're over halfway... And we've made it to a collection of parables, and over the last two weeks, Lloyd and Shannon just did an incredible job of making something that's probably very familiar, parables we've heard many times, feel fresh and new and exciting, and there was so much filled with life there, and I loved it. And this week, Jesus follows his, um, two of his most famous, two of his most exciting parables with this one. The parable of the shrewd manager, where it's a strange thing to go into. Uh, one theologian, they said that this parable is the, um, what do they call it? The problem child of Jesus's parables. And another describes it as the most difficult parable of all. And I think it starts off with our English translation of the word shrewd. Um, Dee and I, my wife and I were talking about it. And she's like, yeah, I would never use the word shrewd unless if I were referring to the famous Shakespearean play, Taming of the Shrewd. Which, if you're wondering, it's actually Taming of the Shrew, not shrewd. So Dee and I had a very educational moment for both of us. And then I had to say, sorry, babe. I had to say, what is a shrew? Because I'm actually confused about that as well. So I found out that a shrew is a small mouse-like rodent creature. And I realized I have no idea what Taming of the Shrew is about, much less this parable, Taming of the Parable of the Shrewd. <laughs> There's a lot of confusion when it comes to this parable. And, and then it gets even worse past the name when you get to the parable itself, where it ends in this way where Jesus basically commends a dishonest, dastardly thief for acting and behaving badly in business. And we begin asking ourselves, is Jesus condoning this kind of bad behavior? And hence, the name is challenging, but the parable itself is even more challenging because we have to wonder, what is Jesus really talking about? So my job today is to make this problem child less problematic, to invite us to see what Jesus is, is calling us to and challenging us with, and to clear the road. And to me, there are three things that come up in this parable, three very exciting pieces of the Christian life. There's an invitation to a different form of stewardship. There's an invitation and a challenge to our way of spending. And then there's this call, act 
shrewdly, act with wit, wisdom, and cunning, you could say, when it comes to worldly wealth. So that's my goal, is I want to explore those three things and along the way help kind of clear the path so this parable makes a little bit more sense. How does that sound? Good. Well, normally I would read the passage all over again, but today um, it's a bit of a, a longer passage and a longer sermon. So I, for sake of time, I'm going to cut part of the reading, but I'll jump to the reading again and again. So let's start off with the context and the characters and the conundrum that this story brings. I'm all about the alliteration today, if you can't tell. Who's the context? As we've been moving through the Gospel of Luke, we've seen four different groups of people regularly be the audience. There's the Pharisees and teachers of the law. There's tax collectors and sinners. There's just the crowd, this amorphous group. And then every now and then there's the disciples. And Luke keeps on switching the audience. And we should always take note of who the, the story or the teaching is told to because it really changes the meaning of the story. This parable is told to the disciples. And we learn in the back half that the Pharisees are present, but it's directed at the disciples. And what that means is this is a parable told to a group of people following Jesus, basing their life around him, trying to become more and more like Jesus. And that's important for us as a church 2,000 years later because we are in the line of disciples. This is a parable for us to hear, to be challenged by, not a parable that Jesus is just telling to random strangers. He's challenging and inviting us as he teaches this. That's the context. And then we move to the characters. And there's two main characters. There's this rich owner and there's the manager. The rich owner would most likely be a landowner um, owning many different properties, vineyards and fields as we see um, with bushels of wheat and tubs of olive oil. And I do like that um, the reading we saw, we were able to change from um, empirical to, nope metric to imperial, and back and forth seeing the strange conundrum of what is 3,000 tons. Um, but this story kicks off as the rich owner has found out information about the manager. And the manager is basically a CFO and a CEO on behalf of the rich owner. He is stewarding the owner's property, making sure bills and payments are coming in, making sure the tenants are following through with being good tenants. And the rich owner has found out that the manager has been doing something wrong. And one of the keys in the parable is Jesus always leaves out lots of information. He lets your mind kind of guess and wonder at certain things. He doesn't say exactly what the manager did. A number of commentators said that he was essentially embezzling and stealing money for himself or misappropriating funds in ways that he shouldn't. We're not sure. What we do know is the manager's called in to be fired and doesn't challenge it. It starts off with the rich man saying, give an account, but then you notice no account is given. And what this most likely means is he is assuming guilt. I have been doing what you've been saying, and I'm going to be fired for it. But the second thing we should also notice along that is not only is it an assumption of guilt, but there's actually a grace extended in that in the first century, if a person was acting in this kind of bad behavior, stealing funds and resources, they would be punished more than just a firing. They may face jail time. They may have to be forced to be paid back the debt, but none of that happens. There is this grace extended, and Eugene Peterson in his book, Tell It Slant, he picks it up and says this, the manager realizes something that is the key to understanding this story. He's fired, but not punished. He's not required to pay back what he's embezzled. He's not jailed. And in fact, 
He's not even scolded. The servant has experienced two aspects of the master's nature. First, he is a master who expects obedience and acts in judgment on the disobedient servant. But he is also a master who shows unusual mercy, generosity, even to a dishonest steward. The manager realizes his um, the manager realizes his punishment is filled with grace. And so he does a surprising act. He says, I've been treated gracefully, and in response, I'll double down on the duplicity. Kind of an interesting thing. I've been, not, I've been fired, but I've given a bit of time, and I'll double down on my bad behavior. And so the manager thinks to himself, I'm done for. I can't do anything. I'm not fit for digging, and I can't beg. He has a very binary approach to life. It's either begging or physical labor, but it most likely could have been because now his reputation's being ruined. So he goes out, and he hatches this plan. He goes, and he cuts the bills of the clients that owe the master. So they know that they are recipients of the manager's grace and good wishes in the hopes that they will become friends. Now, in all the commentaries, this is where basically they spend so much of the time in the story is what is going on in this act. And there are four kind of basic ones that come along, but they can be summarized in two options of what this manager is doing. So I just want to break it down because there's a little bit of confusion what's happening in the story. So option one is the manager has been adding a usury fee on top of what the owner would have charged. And this is actually kind of par for the course in first century, especially around tax collectors. Essentially, the government would say to a, to a tax collector, Rob owes $100. The tax collector would go to Rob and say, Rob, you owe $120. And then Rob would pay the $120, and the tax collector would then go to the government and say, Here's Rob's $100, and neither of them would know that his pockets were lined with this money that was not actually asked for. And so that's one option of what's going on with the story. The manager's been adding a usury fee. But I don't think that's actually what's happening, and many of the commentaries that I read pushed against that. Instead, the second option is that the manager went and discounted the bills without any approval, any request, and just massively discounted these, own, these tenants' bills. And what that means is he stole from the master. And I, I'm convinced of this for a couple reasons. The first is Jesus refers to him as a dishonest manager on multiple fronts. He doesn't say he was scolded, fired, and then behaved well. He said he was scolded, fired, and then was a dishonest manager. The second um, reason that I am convinced of this is that he does it kind of in secret. He says, quickly come and sit down and do this. He doesn't do it in front of the owner. He does it all on his own without anyone else knowing. And the assumption is there are more than these two tenants. And he's going to each of them individually slashing the bill. And the third reason is that it extends the, manager, the owner's grace far beyond what the manager was capable of. He noticed grace at the beginning. And so his dastardly act is, maybe the owner will keep on treating me with grace. So that's where I sit, but there are a couple other options out there, but I don't want to spend all my time there. And the reason, the, the big shock at the end of the story is the manager does this double duplicity, so first of all getting fired for bad money management, and then potentially stealing from his owner, and then the owner says, good job. He's commended for bad behavior, for acting shrewdly with wisdom and street smarts and cunning. 
It's a bit of a problematic story. I mean, imagine if instead of being here at church on Sunday, I was at a business conference and I said, okay, all of you guys are Christian business people. Let's go to our sacred business text, the parable of the shrewd manager, which essentially says conning your boss is a Christian act. Like that's essentially what the story is. It's fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice and good job. You've shown you're a faithful steward of the things God's given you. And that's what, like, there was a, there's an atheist that literally wrote on, like, look at the bad business practices that Christianity teaches in the parable of the shrewd manager. So that can't be what's going on. There's something bigger that Jesus is talking about as this manager, this duplicitous person, is commended for this bad behavior. So what is happening? I want to I look at it in three ways, stewardship, spending, and shrewdness. So the first thing is that Jesus introduces to us to a very important idea of stewardship by speaking about the manager. Shannon last or two weeks ago really reminded us that whenever we see a character that Jesus introduces, we need to learn, lean in and ask, why this character? Why a manager? Well, manager is often what we translate it to in English, but it could also easily be translated to as steward. Manager and steward is essentially the same function, someone who holds on behalf of others in order to manage a property, steward the resources of someone else for the same end goal, but is not themselves the owner. I used to be a manager at a restaurant. I did not own the restaurant. That would have made me much more wealthy. Instead, I acted on behalf of the owner of the restaurant, seeking out his will and his job in the place that I was working in. And that's what a steward does. They hold someone else's resources use someone else's resources as requested by the other person. Are you with me? Okay, so we have to lean in. Why does Jesus pick stewardship? Why does he pick a manager or steward? Because to Jesus, his disciples, who are the audience, and really all of humanity are stewards. They hold resources, money, property, land, in trust to give it back at a later time. And this idea, it's birthed right in the beginning of Scripture with Genesis 1.28, when God says, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living creature. This rule was not as kings or queens, but as shepherds, gardeners, and caretakers. I want to pause here for a moment. This weekend, I was going to say we celebrate, but I'd say we reflect on truth and reconciliation. We reflect on the ways that Canada and the church along with it has failed in treating the original stewards of this land we are in. And I want to acknowledge that much of the reason the church acted that way is, is part of Genesis 128. It's bad theology. They took a text like this, they manipulated it to what they wanted, and they said, we're, we're rulers, we're owners, not stewards. And we acted that way as churches and as people across this world. Bad theology leads to bad action, and we are facing that this weekend as we acknowledge the bad behavior of the church, and we will be praying for that after this service, or later on in the service. But it comes down to, if we have our theology right, we understand the call to stewardship, to holding in trust but not owning, and utilizing on behalf of someone else, it changes how we behave. 
I was, uh, I was thinking through this and, and trying to find a good image, and then I remembered uh, Lord Denethor of Gondor. Now, I realize more and more as time goes on, people are not Lord of the Rings nerds like they should be, so let me just give a quick introduction. This is Lord Denethor of Gondor, played by the wonderful John Noble. Um, but Lord Denethor of Gondor is in the line of stewards of Gondor. They are not kings, but they act on behalf of the true kings of Gondor for generations. And when we first encounter Lord Denethor in The Lord of the Rings, Gandalf says to Pippin, Lord Denethor, however, is not the king. He is a steward, a caretaker of the throne. And as we meet Denethor, especially in the movies, he's this vile figure obsessed with power. And he thinks, I am the true king. I am the king of Gondor. But it's this reminder, he is not. The true king will come and take the throne. And, and Denethor is meant to pass it, hold it in trust for a period of time. And the truth is, I think that humanity and the church with it acts much more like Denethor when it comes to stewardship. We've forgotten that we are caretakers, gardeners, and shepherds, holders in trust, and we act instead, this is mine and mine alone. And so Jesus in this parable, right off the bat, by using a steward, a manager, is pointing at us, at the disciples, saying, you're holding things in trust. And you can be a bad, dishonest steward, like the character in the story, or like Lord Denethor, but instead, I'm calling you to something different. Peter writes about this in 1 Peter. He says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So the first thing this parable does is it gives us an image of stewardship and realizing we, along with this dishonest manager, are probably dishonest managers are in various ways ourselves. A simple way that this begins to be understand is if you look at the Old Testament, it introduces the idea of tithing, and we react, 10%? That's way too much. That's mine. I've worked hard for it, but instead, the, the gift, the goal of stewardship is saying, but you keep 90. It's actually this gracious gift from a generous manager to begin with. And I'll acknowledge that maybe our backs get told, kind of put up against the wall when we're told we're stewards and not owners. Because for me, I start defining myself by my wealth, by how much I make, by how hard I work, by the things I own, and I forget they're not actually mine. They're God's gifts that I hold in trust to bless others, not myself. And that leads us to spending. Because the shocking end of the parable is the dishonest manager is commended because he acted shrewdly, wisely, with cunning. What was his wisdom? I think so much of the time we just skip right past it. But the manager was wise because he did not try to make a quick buck. He didn't try to steal more for himself. He didn't try to gain wealth. Instead, he leverages his owner's money to make friends. That's the shrewd act. That's the wisdom. Using money to make friends. And Jesus just lays it out clear at the end of the parable. In verse 9, he says, Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. Use unjust, unrighteous wealth to gain friends for yourself. It's a very interesting invitation, right? 
And what Jesus is doing is trying to get us to rethink about the purpose of money. The purpose of money is not about social status. It's not about hoarding. It's not about power. Money, all it is, is a tool. And to Jesus, it is a tool to make friends. What do you think money is for? What's your approach? For me, I use money for pleasure and joy to just accumulate more and more things. I use it to eat good food all on my own and drink good cocktails or beers. I use it to bless myself again and again. But instead, Jesus is saying, don't use it to bless yourself. Use it to bless others. And by blessing others, become friends with them. It's very different than our cultural approach. And what are some ways we can do this? In the back half of of talking about shrewdness, I want to look at that, but I'll, I'll lay two quick ones down right away. How can we use money to make friends? I think one thing that many people in our community do does is they live in community houses. You could live independently. You could live all on your own, spend a little bit more, enjoy the pleasure and freedom of being alone, but instead, you save a little bit more money to live with other people, to face the frustration of whose is what's in the fridge, of whose space is whose, but along the way, you make friends. You make relationships. You rub shoulders with other people. Another thing that our community does well is inviting people over for dinner, making space, using the finances you have to bring others in for friendship. And I love that Jesus just says this outright. Use money for the one tool it's actually good for, making space to build friendships. And I think in a city like Vancouver, which is just marked by loneliness, by isolation, by, and by wealth, this is gospel news. We as a church are invited to be friend makers with our resources turning our homes, our cars, and everything that we have to be spaces of friendship instead of spaces of isolation and hoarding. This is why it's told to the disciples, to us, we need to hear these words. And then I think one, and and what we'll do this week in community groups is talk about this. How do we be shrewd with our money? How can we make more spaces of friendship? But one thing that this does this passage, it introduces us to one of the most beautiful ideas. In verse 9, Jesus says, Gain for yourselves friends so that the money is so when the money is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. We all know the old adage, you can't take anything with you when you die. But Jesus undercuts that. He puts a little asterisk, an appendices. You can take friends with you. What it is essentially saying is when we go to heaven's shores, the thing that will greet us is not our money, our success, our achievements, our power, our wealth. We'll be friends. Friends who invite us into eternal dwellings. Friends meeting us in heaven. That's the one thing we get to take with us. That's good news, right? So the wisdom of the shrewd manager is how he chooses to spend someone else's money. He uses it to make friendship that lasts, friendship that will care for him. And the true shrewdness is without knowing it, the dishonest manager is acting like Jesus. Jesus ultimately sought friendship with us. We see this in two places pop up in the New Testament. First, 2 Corinthians 8 says this, 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. And the big question is why? Why did Jesus give up wealth, give up power, give up status to come be with us poor people? Well, he says it in John 15. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. The narrative of the gospel, the truth of the gospel is Jesus gives up wealth and status and power sitting on the left hand of Jesus to be with you and I, to call you and me his friends. That's the shrewd, cunning act of Jesus. And the dishonest manager lives that out, and we are invited to do the same friendship that will greet us in heaven's heaven's gates. I love that. That's been a huge reminder for me this week, because I've thought about all the ways that I've chosen work and money over friends unintentionally. Oh, I've got a shift on the weekend that I have to work when I could instead make time to be with friends. And there's a time for that. There's also a time to focus on building friendships that last instead of treasures that will be rusted and eaten away. Wisdom, cunning, and creative thinking when it comes to spending. So the final part, shrewdness. And I've already touched on it, but let's just reflect a little bit. Let's be creative together. How can we be shrewd with what we have towards the kingdom of heaven, towards making friends with our money and the tools we have? Because I think this story, it's about money, but it's also about more than that. It's about everything that we have become stewards of. How do we use the things we have to be good stewards? I want to reflect on a couple different things. I'll throw them out. And this is just creative thinking and exercising that I hope we engage with further. How can we make friends? First one, many of us in this room have cars. A great and wonderful gift to have a car. Here's what I encourage you to do moving forward. Find ways that you can lend your car to someone else and say, yeah, yeah, don't worry, you can use the car and don't, pay, don't put any gas in it. It's on me. I just want to bless you and care for you. Something simple. And to those of us that don't have cars and you get in and drive, you're like, this was free, this was a gift. I want to hang out with this person more. First, I may want to use their car more, but suddenly you're in each other's company a lot more, right? Second, we can invest in things in our homes or our spaces that actually force and create a desire for us to be hospitable. Uh, Maybe to some of us, it's we just do a little more time of cleaning our apartment so we feel proud of it and we invite people into it. Here's a different one. The apartment Dee and I used to live in, it didn't have space for a kitchen table. We moved into this, this older apartment that's a little more spacious, and we bought a kitchen table. And at first, it only fit four people around it. And then this amazing company built this beautiful board game table. And here's the thing. I was probably a little foolish in spending money to buy it. It was a more expensive table. But as I was thinking for three years about this table coming, I was like, the thing I want more than anything is eight friends sitting around this table. And three weeks ago, I had eight friends for 12 hours sitting around the table playing games together. And I was talking with our spiritual director. I was like, it was one of the most transcendent moments of my life, friendship, this moment mirroring eternity. And all it took was a table and eight friends to be around. 
What are some other things? Um, in the summary, we reflected on the parable of the rich manager or the parable of the rich fool, which is actually a really cool reverse parallel to this story. And Jesus reminds us to sell our possessions. And I challenged you, sell your stuff and don't keep any of the money because you probably don't need it. There's a coffee maker under my counter that I've been trying to sell to give away the money to other people. And I encourage you guys to do it too. Use your possessions, your wealth for the best thing, blessing people around you, making friends. This one will embarrass me a little bit, but a year ago, a little over a year ago, I met Colton. And I was like, Colton is probably the coolest guy. He is suave and patient and, and wise, and he's got great hair. And I was like, I want to be friends with Colton. And I've been telling Dee for a year, I've been plotting how to make Colton my friend. Like, like a madman with a board, I'm like, hey, this is what it's going to take. I was like, Colton's birthday's coming up. He's doing a no-spend year. I'm going to take him out for a beer because I just want to spend time with them. If you want to be friends with people and they have kids, Become friends with the kids. Like, make the kids be like, oh, I like hanging out with this person. And then you can hang out with them. A huge blessing, an easy blessing of the people around. There are people with kids in this room that have probably not gone on a date in a while because they have two wonderful kids. Yes, Colton, <laughs> I'm planting seeds, as you can see. But offer to babysit their kids. Be like, don't worry, I work in St. Pete's Kids. I've got a criminal record check. I know first aid. It's totally above board. But bless other people. I want to be friends with you. And in order to do that, I'm actually going to give you some time of rest. Let's get creative. Let's think about ways that we can be good stewards. And these are just funny ones, but I'm actually serious. Like, spend time. What is the call of shrewdness here? One last one. And this has been kind of something that I've been trying to work through myself. We all call our, our, we call social media social media. There was a day and age when it was called social networking. And I think all of us, probably most people in this room, feel so defeated by social media. We become like eaten alive by it. I realized, I looked at my Instagram two days ago, I hadn't posted a picture on Instagram in a year, but I had still spent an ungodly amount of time on Instagram. It's consumed me. And so I think what, what the church and what many have done is just say, we retreat, we give up, we lost the battle. We're not going to use it properly. It's just going to consume us. And, and many people are trying to pull away from social media, and I think that's a good action. But I think the reason is missing the mark. If you're going to pull away from social media, and I encourage you to take the time to unclaw the claws from yourself, but pull away from it and then ask the question, what is the real purpose of the tool? How do you use it? Maybe we use social media actually as the tool it is to make friends. And as I was like thinking and racking my brain, I was like, how could we possibly do this? There's no way. I realized that my wife runs a business on social media. She, she's very shrewd with it. She spent time to craft a business and connect with people around the world to sell dice. But what is she has done along the way is even more beautiful as she's made friends. So you just use social media as a tool to connect with people around the world that think about the same things that she does, which is making dice. And the thing is, she's made genuine friends. When our dog, Rafi, was sick and going through all his surgeries, her dice maker friends across the world heard about it and sent gift cards to care for us for meals and to go out and to, to relax. They sent toys for Rafi for us to hope that he would be okay. 
when her Instagram business got taken over and hacked, then dice makers across the world gathered together to connect with her, to, for her to connect with someone that works at Meta that could get her site back. And what I saw was, oh, social media is a tool for friendship. And though it is often taken over to be worse than that, at its base, it is a tool that we can use. And so maybe instead of retreating fully, we, we step back and then really look at how can I use this tool to make friends? Maybe that's what Jesus would challenge us with social media. And he would, of course, remind us, be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Be pure and innocent while doing it, but be cunning, wit, and wise as you use it. And I have hope in this. I have a lot of hope that we as a church and churches across the world can actually be shrewd because we have to remember this parable was told to the disciples. And Jesus is calling them out, saying, you're acting foolish. Get your heads on straight. And then in the sequel to the book of Luke, the book of Acts comes. And Acts 2 verse 42 says this, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor with all people. And listen to this last part. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. You could summarize it another way. And the Lord made friends. This small group of people looked at what they had and said, let's be shrewd and wise and cunning and make friends. That's my call for this church. My hope and prayer for us as a church is that we are good stewards who use all the gifts that we have. Our money, our possessions, our time, our home, our cars, our phones, our social media accounts, our gifts and our talents to bless those around us and become friends with one another. Friends through whom the goodness of God flows. Friends who will greet one another on heaven's shores. That sounds like good news, doesn't it? Let me pray.